Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host Tyler Rouse. Now I know I said I'd cover thoracic outlet syndrome in this episode, and I am working on it, but there's a lot of good historical stuff there, so I decided instead to follow up on the last episode. If you recall, we covered Dr. Gibbon and the heart-lung bypass machine, who was initially inspired to invent his machine after a failed attempt to surgically remove a pulmonary embolus. This surgery was known as the Trendelenburg Procedure, so I thought it'd be fun to further explore this interesting German surgeon. Now, some of you may be more familiar with the name and association with a patient position, so let's put our heads down and find out more about Trendelenburg in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Friedrich Trendelenburg was born on May 24, 1844 in Berlin, Germany. Now, that date has some significance for Canadians, as that is the birthday of Queen Victoria. She was celebrating her 25th when Frederick was born. Now, we celebrate with a long weekend, officially called Victoria Day, which is usually the first of the year with decent weather. We affectionately call this holiday May 2-4. Friedrich was the only child to his father Adolf, a well-known professor of philosophy and rector magnificus of the University of Berlin, which in this use essentially means the principal or head of the university. His mother, Ferdinandi, was a grade school teacher, and both parents were actively involved in his education, leading Friedrich to graduate near the top of his class at the age of 17. Now here, his parents made a decision that would set the trajectory of his life. Thinking that he was not yet ready to go to college, his father instead sent him to Scotland to give German lessons to the family of an Edinburgh publisher. Now while in Scotland, his father's friend Alan Thompson, a physician and professor of anatomy at the University of Glasgow, took Friedrich under his wing. Thompson allowed him to sit in on anatomy classes at the medical school and appointed him as one of his student assistants, doing things like cleaning blackboards, painting illustrations, and helping with examinations. Now, Trendelenburg also witnessed his very first surgery by none other than Joseph Lister, to go way back to see podcast episode 4, and attended his clinical lectures. After 15 months in Scotland, Trendelenburg returned to Germany in July of 1863 to start medical studies at the University of Berlin. While attending school there, he met many of the famous physicians of 19th century Germany, including Bernhard van Langenbeck and Ludwig Trobe. Now, you may recall the name Langenbeck, either from the eponymous retractor used in the OR, or from me mentioning him in a previous podcast. Now, it was back in episode 39 on Theodore Billroth. Now, rather than retell the story now, let's go in the Wayback Machine and have a listen. Now, I imagine those of you that have worked in an OR had their ears prick up when I mentioned the name of Langenbeck as a commonly used surgical instrument is named after him. Now, rather than waiting to do a podcast in my Better Know a Surgical Instrument series, let's cover him now. Bernard Rudolf Conrad von Langenbeck, 1810-1887, was an already established and famous German surgeon when Bill Roth joined his clinic. In 1847, he was appointed staff surgeon in the army, later being promoted up to lieutenant general and given the permanent post of surgeon general to the army. Langenbeck served four tours of active military duty, and perfected a surgical technique that reduced the number of amputations required for traumatic limb injuries. He also became an authority on gunshot wound treatment, and Langenbeck also had great respect for the neutrality of the wounded, eventually helping to found the German Red Cross and serving as president of the Geneva International Convention, which was the international treaty that covered the treatment of the sick and wounded in the battlefield. Anyways, in 1848, Langenbeck was appointed staff surgeon at the University of Berlin, where he would stay for 34 years. In 1860, he founded the medical journal Archives of Surgery, which is the oldest scientific surgical journal in the world still in print. Now, there's a fun fact to drop in the OR or to your friends and colleagues. 
Now, Langenbach was known as a great teacher and mentored not only Bill Roth, but also Theodore Coker, see Podcast 28 on Nobel Prize winning surgeons, Trendelenburg, and many others. He developed a training system where new medical graduates would live at the hospital and gradually assume more and more responsibility in the care of surgical patients. This house staff model was copied by Dr. Osler and Halstead at the Johns Hopkins University, see Podcast 35 on Halstead. Of course, Langenbeck's name is best known for the simple handheld retractor that consists of a flat blade bent down at a right angle to the handle, but he also invented a number of other instruments and is credited with coming up with 21 different operations. Okay, so after three years of training, Trendelenburg graduated on June 12, 1866, and entered service in the armed forces at a military hospital in Gorlitz, which is now in East Germany, but at the time was part of the Kingdom of Prussia during the Austro-Prussian War. This was near the Bohemian border, then part of the Austrian Empire. A quick side note, have you ever heard of the Bohemian lifestyle? It's described as living outside of mainstream culture without attachments, as outsiders, vagabonds, usually associated with musicians, poets, artists, and writers. I have to think of Hemingway in France, and in fact, when he was a writer for the paper Toronto Daily Star, which is now the Toronto Star, he wrote an article called American Bohemians in Paris about the cafe culture of artists there. So how's this linked to the region of, of Bohemia? Well, the original Bohemians were artists living in Paris in the 19th century, in the lower-class neighborhoods of the Romani, also known as the Roma or Gypsies. Bohemine was a common term for the Romani people in France, who were thought to have arrived in France via the Bohemian region in the 15th century. Now, although that's not correct, the name stuck. So this Austro-Prussian War was also known as the German Civil War, the Brothers War, or the Fraternal War, as it was fought between different groups of Germans, which is an oversimplification, and as the Seven Weeks War, as it only lasted one month and 12 days. But even though it was brief, Trendelenburg's experiences left a deep impression on him. He saw close to 400 patients in the first few days of duty. In addition to treating gangrene and wound infections, he performed his first major operation, a thigh amputation of an Austrian soldier, who died eight days after the operation. As well, he witnessed the violent symptoms and agonizing deaths of soldiers during a cholera outbreak while stationed at Bohemia and Moravia. One source states that they used Havana cigars to improve the foul hospital air. Now, following demobilization on September 17th of 1866, Trendelenburg returned to Berlin and wrote his doctoral thesis on ancient Indian surgery called De Veterum Indorum Chirurgia, which is my butchering of Latin, which he dedicated to Alan Thompson and took his state medical exams. It was an interesting choice for a doctoral thesis and probably chosen because of Trendelenburg's particular interest in medical history. He thought it was important to trace the gradual development of the field, and of course I found this intriguing. So here's a quote on his thoughts about this. Quote, Most doctors lack completely any historical interest, not only while in medical school, but later also. To be sure, the gap between present and past is greater in medicine than in the so-called humanities. The past in medicine no longer has the same permanent value as does, for instance, the philosophy of the Greeks. But in medicine, too, today always rests on the foundations of yesterday, and it is a matter of the highest interest to trace the gradual development, end quote. I couldn't agree more. On April 1st of 1868, Trendelberg became the first assistant to von Langenbeck. After barely a year in, another military campaign took him back to service. In the autumn of 1869, Trendelenburg participated in the Franco-Prussian War, earning an Iron Cross for his selfless efforts in treating the wounded. He returned home in 1870 and left the army for good with an honorable discharge in 1871. Shortly after returning, Trendelenburg co-founded the German Society of Surgery, 
along with other luminaries of German surgery, including von Langenbeck, Simon, and Volkmann, and would later hold the position of historian. Now, during his time with Langbeck, he became interested in anesthesia. In his memoirs, Trendolberg wrote, quote, In Langenbeck's clinic, Liebrich's chloral was used in rather large doses. The patients went to sleep, but often did not wake up again, end quote. Well, that's obviously not good, so this likely inspired him to invent the Trendelenburg cannula, which is a tracheostomy tube, which is a tube going directly into the windpipe, fitted with an inflatable rubber collar that prevented aspiration of blood during surgical procedures of the pharynx, larynx, and oral cavity. Now, this was connected to Trendelenburg's cone, which was fitted with a piece of flannel stretched across a wire frame where chloroform would be dripped onto, allowing for an easy administration of anesthesia. So following all this training and military service, Trendelenburg decided to settle down. In 1874, he became engaged to Charlotte Fabricus, but there was a problem. As he was still working for Langenbeck, and it was Langenbeck's policy that married assistants were excluded from further employment in his clinics, something would have to give. Trendelenburg at the age of 30 would marry Charlotte on May 21st of 1874, and they would go on to have six children together. And with the support of Langenbeck, he became the director of the surgical department in Berlin's Friedrichshain Hospital, where he introduced Listerian methods of occlusive bandages, wound drainage, and carbolic spray. He only held this position for a short time before accepting the appointment to the chair of the Institute of Surgery at the University of Rostock. In his memoirs, Trendelberg describes his years of, in Rostock like this, quote, The small number of patients and the free time left by my professional activities were of advantage for my own thoughts. Elevation of the pelvis and varicose vein surgery owe their origin to my time in Rostock, end quote. So let's talk about these two areas. First, he did research into the ligation or tying off of the long saphenous vein in the leg to treat varicose veins. Not a new concept, but he introduced the idea of doing this at the mid-thigh. One of his students modified this to accessing the vein in the groin, and although additional alterations have been made, this concept is still part of the treatment options for varicose veins. Now, he also described what is known as the Trendelenburg test, the first of two, uh, which is used to test the venous valves, which prevent the backflow of blood in the veins, which is the cause of varicose veins. But it was his other work in Rostock, which would become the most well-known, particularly to those in surgery, the Trendelenburg position. Now, simply put, this is putting the patient in a head-down, pelvis-up position. It's not a new concept, having been described by Celsus in the 1st century CE, Paul of Aegina in 7th century CE, and Abulcasis in the 10th century CE, each suggesting an inclined position for hernia operations. Now, bladder stone sufferers have long recognized that a head-down position relieves a crisis of urinary retention by moving the stone away from the bladder outlet. But Trendelenburg stressed the benefit of this elevated pelvic position for delicate intravesical or inside-the-bladder procedures, as well as intraperitoneal or inside-the-abdomen operations, and is responsible for reviving its use. The term Trendelenburg position was first used by Mendez de Leon in his 1888 report on pelvic laparotomies and gynecological examination. So let's talk a bit more about the position. So more specifically, it involves lowering of the head and chest while elevating the hips, about 15 to 20 degrees, which is considered advantageous for a number of procedures, including pulmonary embolectomy and lithotomy procedures, which is the breaking up of stones, usually in the bladder. And he found it particularly useful in offering operative visualization for surgical pair of vesico-vaginal fistulas, if you remember from previous episodes, we talked about that, where it's an abnormal connection between the bladder and the vagina. And he would use a transvesical approach, meaning going through the bladder. Now, the opposite, or head-up position, pelvis down, 
although never described by him, has become known as the anti-Trendelenburg position, or in my experience, uh, people call it the reverse Trendelenburg. Now, maybe knowing more of the history will help some student remember which is which. Trendelenburg is also credited with inventing a metal operating table with padded shoulder braces specifically designed to maintain elevation of a patient's hips and flexion of the knees. I came across a funny story about the Trendelenburg position. In 1906, Trendelenburg was in the U.S. for his lecture to the American Medical Association. He visited Boston where he observed operations at Harvard. During one operation, the surgeon announced that he was placing the patient in the Trendelenburg position. A voice came from the stands, Trendelenburg. The surgeon persisted with this pronunciation. From the stands came again, Trendelenburg. I am Trendelenburg. Now his American Medical Association lecture, given during his visit, displayed his lifelong interest in the history of medicine. Here's what he said, quote, Operation for a long time was only permitted as a last resort, and the bad results obtained by following such bad practice seemed to confirm the prevailing view. Not until the necessary courage had developed and the proper opportunity presented itself for early operation was surgery permitted to demonstrate its capabilities, end quote. And then really, what he's talking about is the beginning of the history of modern surgery. Now, Trendelenburg stayed in Rostock until 1882, moving to Bonn to become professor of surgery, which he stayed at for 13 years. In Bonn, he had a large number of surgical patients, five times the number of students as in Rostock, and started daily work between 6 and 7 a.m. in the morning, going on rounds, followed by morning lectures and operations, at times six or more major interventions per day, and the afternoon was taken up by consulting hours and the evening by a surgical course. Now, I don't know if this was the time period when he described them, but it seems as good a place as any to mention a couple of other things that bear his name. These are related to weakness or paralysis of the abductor muscles of the hip, which move the thigh away from the midline of the body, particularly the gluteal muscles, from conditions such as muscular dystrophy. The Trendelenburg sign involves assessing the patient standing on one leg, and the Trendelenburg gait involves assessing these muscles by observing the patient's walk. Anyways, his final stop was in Leipzig, where he became a professor in 1895 at the age of 51. While in Leipzig, Trendelenburg became interested in thrombosis and embolism. On April 21st of 1908, at the 37th Annual Congress of the German Surgical Association, Trendelenburg reported an unsuccessful clinical trial of his new technique for surgically treating pulmonary embolism which he had painstakingly worked out in the lab on animals, including rabbits, sheep, and cats. He only reported on one patient, a 70-year-old deaf woman. She had fractured her femur, which is in her leg, six days prior to the operation. On that evening, half an hour before being put to bed, she suddenly collapsed with profuse sweating, moaning, complaining of severe distress, and then lost consciousness. The operation began 18 minutes after onset of the first symptoms. Trendelberg had been called at his home a distance of eight minutes travel and the operation took five minutes from incision to opening of the pulmonary artery. The patient did not survive. After the Congress, Trendelenburg undertook operative pulmonary embolectomy two more times without success. One patient survived only to die within a day or two of the operation. Now, Although never successful himself, he did survive long enough to hear his previous trainee in Leipzig, Martin Kirschner, present the first case of a long-term survival after Trendelenburg's procedure at the German Congress of Surgery in 1924. Kirschner performed the operation on March 18 of 1924 in Konigsberg, East Prussia, where he was a professor at the university there. 
The patient was a 38-year-old woman who had suddenly collapsed on the third day following repair of an inguinal hernia. Kirshner removed three large elongated clots from the pulmonary artery, the longest of which was 15 centimeters. The patient made a full recovery. Now, while researching Kirshner, I made a very interesting discovery. The ubiquitous K-wire used in orthopedic surgery is actually short for Kirshner wire. Invented in 1909, it was a smooth pin initially used for skeletal traction, but now has many uses and is the standard of treatment for hand fractures worldwide. So in his early 60s, Trendelberg developed respiratory and cardiac symptoms, which forced him to retire earlier than foreseen. He resigned his post in 1911 and was bestowed the title Privy Senior Officer of Health, making him one of the highest ranking officers at the Royal Court. He spent some of his retirement writing his memoirs, which were titled From My Joyful Days of Youth, a Memoir. In it, he wrote, quote, It has given me great pleasure to take advantage of the leisure of old age to write a book that does not create anything new, but attempts to put old accomplishments into perspective, end quote. Trendelberg finished them in the spring of 1924, the same year that Kirshner performed the first successful pulmonary embolectomy and died in December of that same year at the age of 80 from cancer of the mandible. Over the next three decades, there were only scattered reports of successful outcomes of attempted pulmonary embolectomies from around the world. The first success in the U.S. came by Steenberg and Warren at the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts in 1958. The development of the cardiopulmonary bypass machine, as described in the last podcast, would contribute to more successful cases. Today, there are a number of options for treating pulmonary embolism, including medications to break up the clot called thrombolysis. But for patients that can't be treated medically, surgical embolectomy is still on the table, so to speak. Some literature even suggests that with improved techniques and support, it's making a comeback, and surgery, rather than being a rescue therapy, could be considered a first-line therapy. Now, considering his appreciation that today rests on the foundations of yesterday, I think Dr. Friedrich Trendelberg would like that very much. Now, that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. I will go back to my original planned topic, thoracic outlet syndrome, next time. As an interesting riddle, what do woolly mammoths and thoracic outlet syndrome have in common? I'll tune in next time to find out. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always... Thanks for listening.